the Jewish views on Palestinian foreign aid. Israel-Britain alliance claims our taxes fund convicted murderers. How will the authorities react? Cambridge Lemud, as another of the popular annual learning events is nearly upon us, we find out what's in store and get ready to run for money. How you could take part in the Maccabi GB community fun run. First, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The human rights campaigner who is leading a Labour Party review into anti-Semitism has insisted she'll investigate without fear or favour, despite revealing she joined the party on the day she was appointed to the role. Former Director of Liberty Shami Chakrabarti was given the job two weeks ago by the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn at the height of the anti-Semitism row over remarks made by Ken Livingstone and Naz Shah. Ms Chakrabarti says she'll be independent as she investigates the boundaries for acceptable behaviour and language. Baroness Royale, a former advisor to the Labour leader Neil Kinnock, has said she's found no institutional anti-Semitism within the Oxford University Labour Club, despite its vice chairman resigning amid allegations that members have some kind of problem with Jews. The peer, who was investigating claims by Labour's National Executive Committee, has though recommended that the party consider adopting rule changes that allow swifter action to deal with anti-Semitism. Boris Johnson has dismissed criticism of his comparison between Hitler's Third Reich and the European Union as synthetic outrage. It came after the former Deputy Prime Minister Lord Heseltine described the comments as reckless and irresponsible, and Mr Johnson's fellow Brexit campaigner Chris Grayling declined to endorse them in a radio interview. Councillors in the London Borough of Barnet are proposing to rename Hendon's Holocaust Garden in honour of the humanitarian Sir Nicholas Winton, who rescued hundreds of Jewish children from Prague on the eve of the Second World War. The new London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, backs the idea, and Councillor Dean Cohen will propose the change at a meeting next week, saying it was important to honour the values of solidarity and civic courage. And finally, a Jewish woman aged 113 is now the oldest living American, after the death last week of New Yorker Susanna Jones, who was 116. Goldie Mitchelson, who lives in Massachusetts, was born in Russia in 1902. She said, I never thought I'd live this long. Who would, Goldie? That's the news, now the sport, with Andrew Sherwood. Thanks, Viv. Woodford Wanderers clinched the Division 1 title on Sunday and dedicated their win to their late manager Paul Himes. Club chairman Alex Aviram said, Our legendary ex-gaffer was a true Woodford hero and his voice will forever be heard in the changing room and on the sidelines. In boxing, Tony Milch has announced his first title fight will take place at the York Hall in July. The 34-year-old middleweight has won his previous nine fights. And finally, Gal Nevo claimed Israel's first medal at the European Swimming Championships in London winning silver in the 200-metre individual medley. Elsewhere in the pool, Andrea Mures finished the women's 100-metre freestyle final in fifth place, and youngster Ronan Fall reached the semis of the 200-metre breaststroke. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much. Well, let's start off this week's edition of The Jewish Views, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News. Joining me, Phil Dave, in the studio to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. Let's start off, as we always do, Rich, with the front page. What might be on the cover this week? 
Day 86, is this, in the Labour anti-Semitism scandal? Good gracious, you amaze me. It couldn't be. This is a saga that's worthy of an opera. They might actually compose an opera called Labour anti-Semitism scandal in years to come. So I think this is the sixth front page story we've done on this. Baroness Royal spent three months now looking into allegations of anti-Semitism at the Oxford uh, Union Labour Club where Alex Chalmers, the chairman, had resigned after saying that some people had uh, an issue with Jewish members and the word Zio was being used as a term of insult, etc. Now, the report came out and we were all very excited and I was pressing F5, F5, refresh, refresh on Tuesday afternoon, waiting for the report to come out. And it did come out. Only the executive summary, around 11 pages of it came out. The rest of it was suppressed. Now, massive own goal there. Labour, unfortunately, went into great detail to be as transparent as possible on this. And then more questions remain unanswered than answered. Now, there were 11 recommendations that Baroness Royal has put forward that will be taken up by the National Committee for the Labour Party. So that's a good thing. However, they've left the door open to uh, readmit members who have been expelled for anti-Semitism. Members of the Jewish community are now using... Expelled as opposed to suspended, sorry. Expelled. People who have been expelled, if they show good positive uh, reflection on, on what they've done or what they've said. People like Naz Shah, who have been very apologetic, those sort of people, if she was ever to be expelled, would then potentially be allowed back. Ken Livingston, obviously, is another matter. People in the community are calling this thing things like a cover-up and, and, and Labour in denial. There's a big own goal here. It's, it's a lot of frustration. There are some positives. As I said, 11 points have been put forward to the NEC and will be hopefully enacted. But more questions than answers. And we are left now with just one more inquiry, the Shami Chakrabarti, larger inquiry about a code of conduct and a way forward for the Labour Party. If that isn't entirely transparent, then I fear Labour could be lost to the Jewish community. Can I just ask you to clarify how you know you said earlier on that you said that it was suppressed. How do we know that? Sorry. Well, Baroness Royal herself sent the report to the party and the party only published certain sections of it. But how, how do we know that they've only published certain well, sections? Well, she herself there? has stated her frustration Fine, that it wasn't that. published okay. in full. If you, okay. if, you, if you can find the rest of the report online, then you can send it to us if you want, because <laughs> we, we certainly can't find it. I, I trust you guys implicitly. I just wanted clarification for the sake of our listeners and anyone else who might be listening who might think the same. OK, well... I would also like to point out at this stage that Baroness Ryle was invited to take part in this edition of The Jewish Views, but was unable to do so. Well, I guess the saga will continue. I am sure that it will unfold even further over the coming weeks, as it has done so far. But let's move on to other news. I know that it doesn't always feel like there are other stories, but there are, luckily. And Cardinal Koch, I think this is how we're pronouncing his name, the Vatican's most senior official who works for relations between Jews and the church. He's been passing comments. What's he been saying? Yeah, we had a very wide-ranging interview on Monday. Cardinal Koch was at the Cambridge Symposium for Jewish and Catholic theologians, and he uh, was very frank and open, saying that the church needs to learn from the Jewish community. The Jewish family values, the traditions of Shabbat, you know, the family that eats together, stays together, these sort of hearth-and-home lessons that the church could learn from. Very interesting uh, perspective on his part that the Jewish community is an 
example to the Catholic community. And other issues he was talking about, he was also talking about the Pope's wish to open Vatican archives relating to uh, the Nazi era and claims of collaboration. That has been uh, an issue of uh, a real bugbear for the Jewish community for decades now. So uh, hopefully the Pope's making positive uh, noises in that area. Yeah, so uh, as I said, it talks about lots of different areas. It's uh, an interesting um, half-page interview that readers can see on page four this week. I love the way, though, that he says that the family that eats together stays together and all that. There speaks a man who has clearly never been a Friday night dinner table at the Dave family. But there you go. Also, in other news this week, a much deserved honour for a true French hero. Now, obviously, we remember the horrible terrorist attack that occurred in the hypercaché market back in January last year, I think it yeah. was, if I'm not mistaken. But there is some good news to come out. There is of some it. good news. I remember this event happening. I was the only one left in the office when the story about the attack at the Hypercaché supermarket in just outside Paris uh, took place. And it, it later emerged, I think on the Sunday, that a Muslim man was actually responsible for saving a lot of Jewish lives. A Malian guy called uh, Lasana Bathali managed to hide a lot of Jewish customers of the supermarket in a cold storeroom. And then he later escaped and he told the police and he informed them of what was happening. And now he's going to be honoured in London next week after Faith Matters helped bring him to the UK. He's going to be honoured by the Jewish News and it's much deserved. Um, there's a lot of negative news about Muslims in the press. You know, this is a good story. It's a good story about a Malian Muslim man helping French Jewish people after another Malian Muslim man tried to murder all of them. Well, I was going to say, considering that he was clearly up against one of what he might describe as one of his brethren, as it were, who was carrying out this horrible attack. And he could have very easily escaped with his life because there's probably no doubt that he would have just been allowed to walk free whilst heaven only knows what would have carried on inside. But he chose not to. And that's remarkable. Actually, when, when he managed to escape the supermarket and tell the police they initially thought that he was one of the terrorists and he was interrogated by the police before he was able to actually help them out. So um, even that gives a little insight into some of the underlying prejudices um, that, that this story kind of helps to, to wipe away. So our readers can meet the man himself. He's doing two events. He's doing an event at City Hall where the new London Mayor Sadiq Khan is going to be hosting. But before that, on the 29th of May, he's going to be appearing at JW3 and we're going to be co-hosting that event. And you can go online now to purchase your tickets uh, at the JW3 website. Which is jw3.org.uk. Yeah, 29th of May. Excellent. Well, from one remarkable man to another. Sir Nicholas Winton is back in the news now. Obviously, we lost Sir Nicholas last year. However, he is back in the news with very good reason for a couple of things. I believe that one we heard earlier on in the news with Viv, that a garden is potentially going to be renamed in his honour. But what else has occurred? Yes, so there's been a memorial service that took place on Thursday at uh, London's Guildhall with about 400 people there, including people that he saved and lots of diplomats and envoys from Czechoslovakia where he saved the children from. And... Also this week, a lot of survivors that he's helped save have come out and they've paid tribute to him, saying that they owe everything to him, and also reflecting on the modern refugee crisis, uh, with one even saying that um, the current modern refugee crisis is even worse than what they faced uh, before the start of the Second World War. Extraordinary claim. 
when when we lose great people often it dies down eventually and you know their legacy is cemented and we all move on with our lives but since we've lost Sir Nicky I feel that every week or every month his name has been called to mind or he's been part of the news or we've been given an opportunity to reflect on him and his extraordinary courageous heroic acts and the garden and the memorial and the stamp and the campaign which a hundred thousand Jewish news readers backed there's so many ways and so many things we can do I think to learn from this man and reflect on this man's great deeds and hopefully in the in the years to come more people more generations will learn about what this man did and the fact that something like 7,000 people are alive today thanks to what he achieved here's hoping well that's where we're going to have to leave it for this week but thank you both very much indeed to richard farrah and jack mendel don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the jewish news every thursday across london or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk now also in the news this week claims were made by the israel britain alliance michael mccann a former labor mp who now fronts the alliance group for the zf has said that the department for international development is guilty of turning a blind eye to uk taxpayers money being used to incentivize murder stark claims i'm sure you'll agree that definitely need justifying so i have been speaking to michael himself i started by asking him to clarify exactly what his and his organization's concerns are the israel britain alliance it's one of the fundamental reasons that it exists is to bring clarity to the israel palestinian conflict and one of the things that we have identified is that the department for international development funds the palestinian authority for work it does in East Jerusalem, the West Bank and Gaza, around 25 million goes directly to the Palestinian Authority through a multi-donor World Bank trust fund. But, and this is a problem, the Palestinian Authority decide for political reasons to pay, to make payments, to make salary payments to convicted murderers, convicted terrorists who are in Israeli prisons on a rising scale from £250 a month to over £2,000 a month. And we, the British taxpayer, are subsidising those payments. But Michael, I I do have to ask you in the interest of fairness, because I would like to think that despite being a Jewish programme, that we can conduct this kind of discussion fairly. How do you know this? Sorry, I suppose that's the first thing I need to establish. How do you categorically know that indirectly funds that are being given from British taxpayers are going to these, as you say, convicted criminals? It was dead simple. I used to be a Labour member of Parliament. I was a member of the International Development Select Committee. I used to work some years ago for the Department for International Development. I know how it works. I know how it disperses aid and... If you want the copper bottom guarantee that I'm correct, when I was there in 2014 with the International Development Committee, I gave this direct question to the Palestinian Authority Finance Minister. Do you pay convicted criminals a salary every month on a rising scale, which means that the more time spent in prison means a higher salary? And do you know what his answer was? Yes. So therefore, it's, it's, it's just unequivocal. It is taking place. It used to be, the money used to be paid from the PA to their Ministry of Prisoner Affairs. They, tried, they, they closed down the Ministry of Prisoner Affairs and they opened up a PLO commission for prisoners' affairs. And Itamar Marcus from Palestine Media Watch has identified the, the money trail, which shows that in the year that the Ministry of Prisoner Affairs closed down, 
and the PLO commissioner for prisoners started, there was a ca- the cash transfer increased by 446 million shekels, $128 million. And that was the money that the PLO needed to pay the prisoners. So there isn't any doubt about this. The only people who are in denial about it, the PA freely admit it, the only people that are in denial about it are, is the Department for International Development. Well, I've, we've obviously got to be careful because Department for International Development are not necessarily here to answer their sure. side of the story. Their defence says that their money only pays for the salaries of Palestinian civil servants. However, if you know how the aid budgets work, and I do, the money goes through a World Bank multi-donor trust fund, and then it goes directly into a Palestinian Authority account. You can't say, that's a British pound, that's a US pound, that's a US dollar, that's a, a Norwegian donation. That's, you, you, can't, you can't identify the money that way. It all goes into a single pot, and it's, it's there specifically for what's called capacity building to allow the Palestinian Authority to make their own decisions. It's actually, the whole concept is good. It's to prepare the Palestinian Authority for future statehood, if and when that time comes. But what they choose to do with the money, and we, and this is why I say quite categorically that we subsidise it, they choose to then pay Palestinian prisoners, convicted prisoners in prison, and what's, what, what is also beyond peradventure is that they, they also support incitement. What we are therefore saying is that this money is wrong to pay the Palestinian Authority when they're misusing funds like this, and it has to stop. We're not saying that the aid should stop because there are poor people in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem. That, those payments should continue to make sure that the poorest people are looked after. But the Palestinian Authority must be held to account and they must be told that unless you properly use those funds to administer and capacity build, then those funds will stop and we'll put them elsewhere. But then the problem is that potentially those who need it most will suffer as a result of it. And isn't that necessarily what the, the PA know? And as a result of it are almost, if you will, holding foreign aid to ransom, if you like, because they know that they don't have to stop what they're doing because if they do, then suddenly the poorest people in the Palestinian territories are going to suffer. So how do well, you win? It's a no-win situation, surely. Well, we're not creating that no-win situation. It's the Palestinian Authority and President Abbas that's creating that situation. But no, we, then we, might, problem, we might not be creating the situation, but then don't we as a country now, I'm not necessarily talking about the Jewish community, but don't we as a country have a moral duty to make sure that our obligations to foreign aid are honoured? Well, I, th- I think that as, a, as an individual, but uh, let me just put it in the context for you. We have got around 27 bilateral relationships across the world. So we have country-to-country relationships in places like Rwanda, Malawi, Uganda, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, and Pakistan, and uh, you know a whole bundle of different countries. Aid was stopped to Rwanda, aid, direct aid support was stopped to Malawi, and direct aid support was stopped to Uganda because the DFID agreement with those countries, which is the technical term is Memorandum of Understanding, that's something that the, the, the DFID has with the Palestinian Authority as well, they were breached. They broke the rules. In the case of Rwanda, Paul Kagame was accused of funding M23 rebels in the DRC. In the case of Malawi, Joyce Banda was accused of having corrupt government officials who were misusing aid money. So therefore, the same argument uh, that you're putting to me applies. Of course, when aid stops, it can hurt the, mo- the poorest people. But what you do is you don't stop the money flowing what you do is you stop it going to the people who are abusing it. There's, the money can be spent in a whole bundle of different ways. There are fantastic Israeli-Palestinian 
coexistence programs, which we should fund. Quite frankly, I think we should fund more of them. So we're not. I'm not. I'm not suggesting for a second we should stop the money going into these poor areas. What we should, what we should do is we should stop the money being put into the Palestinian Authority until such times, until such times as they behave properly and sp- and start spending the money for the programs it was meant to be spent on. But even then, I would say that they have to be given a final opportunity to clear up their act. And I, I would suggest to different ministers that they have to have a sit down with President Abbas, with his ministers, and say, if you want to support families and people for welfare needs, if their husbands or their sons, daughters or whoever is in prison, then that's a different kettle of fish because we have a welfare system in Britain which means that if you or I were sent to prison then and our family, families face penury, they would be looked after. Quite right and appropriate. But you cannot have aid being used to pay people who have been convicted of murder and you actually give them more money depending on how long they've been in prison for. Because that's not looking after people for welfare reasons. That's rewarding crime. Okay, well, what would you say the solution is then? Because what are you at the Israel-Britain Alliance trying to achieve? What do you want to see happen? Well, first of all, Diffid have to accept the, the reality, which everyone else sees, which is that their funds, the funds that the, the British taxpayers' money, is being used by the Palestinian Authority to fund incitement and to support convicted prisoners. That's wrong. What they have to do, is, and I know it's tough, and I know that the Foreign Office wants to keep all the avenues for peace open, they have to confront the Palestinian Authority and say, this is unacceptable. Other countries are already doing it. Uh, Norway, which just recently confronted President Abbas about these payments. So it's not just Britain, it's a whole load of countries who also support the Palestinian Authority. We have to confront them about the issue and explain that it's unacceptable and ask them how they're going to resolve it. The International Development Committee made a recommendation in 2014 that we, British, that the British government should speak to the Palestinian Authority and explain to them it was unacceptable and ask them how they intended to resolve it. No problem with supporting families and the welfare needs of those families, but they must be given the opportunity to wean themselves off these payments which are unacceptable. So that's the first way that you deal with the problem. Secondly, we have to confront them on, on incitement. Because it is now beyond doubt, there are so many examples that, uh, you know, you just need to look up the internet and you can find it on uh, Palestinian Media Watch or uh, other outlets. There are so many examples now where the Palestinian Authority is praising violence, is creating incitement within its own boundaries. But then when it comes to the international community, they say that they want peace. There are two contradictory messages and those have to be resolved. And I don't believe it's beyond the, the collective wit of the Department for International Development or the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to sit down and thrash these issues out and say, yes, we are prepared to help you. We are prepared to help your people. We're, help, we're prepared to help you towards statehood. But you must realise that British taxpayers' money is precious to us. It has to be spent properly and you have to abide by the rules. If they don't do that, then you have to move on to the next stage, which is to question if you can continue to give direct funding to the Palestinian Authority. Would it be better spent on other initiatives, other programmes which don't involve the money going into the Palestinian Authority's bank account? Michael McCann from Israel-Britain Alliance talking to me there about his organisation's concerns over the use of Palestinian foreign aid from the UK. 
I should point out at this stage that we have asked the Department for International Development to take part in this programme. However, at the time of recording, they were unable to provide anyone, but they have given us a statement to read out. So I will read that instead. And they have said that no UK aid is used for payments to Palestinian prisoners or their families. Only named civil servants from a pre-approved EU list are eligible. And the vetting process ensures that our funds do not benefit terrorist groups. UK and international support for the PA is helping to maintain stability, deliver basic services and build the institutions of a future Palestinian state, living in peace and security side by side with Israel. So that's the statement that the Department for International Development have given us. Instead, they were unable to appear on this programme at the time of recording. However, the invitation does extend to future editions of The Jewish Views. You are listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by community volunteers Andy Lucas and Liz Hirschkorn. They'll be discussing the comments made by the former mayor of London, Boris Johnson, by his comparing the EU to Hitler's Germany. Plus, Diana Toman will be finding out about this year's Maccabi GB community fun run. Now, Jewish learning is never at its finest than when the annual Limud conference is on. But did you know that it is not just the only event? Apart from Limud in the Woods as well, there also happens to be Limud Cambridge, which happens to be a matter of weeks away. Kate Fulton, our entertainment and culture reporter, has been finding out a little more for us by speaking to the co-organisers, husband and wife team Joe and Julian Landy. She started by asking Julian, why do we need a Limud in Cambridge? This is actually the fifth Cambridge Limud. The first one was in 2007. I started it myself because I was inspired by, unbelievably, my own son, Robin, who in 2005 was the programme director for the Limud conference in that year. I had never been to Elimud before then, but found it absolutely wonderful. I was totally entranced and so stimulated when I came away. My head was buzzing for days, if not weeks. So I decided when I came home that we had to have one locally. There are regional Limuds all over the place, uh, and Cambridge is probably the smallest town where there is a regional Limud, uh, but it's been very successful. For those people who may be listening and don't know, what is a Limud? What the what is so fabulous about it? Who speaks? I mean, what is it? Is audience participation? Is it a classroom setting, lecture theatre style? Tell us a bit about it. All of those things. The basis of Limud is is learning, and it's an open invitation to learn what you like for the day. So we cover all sorts of learning. It's not just traditional Jewish learning, but all sorts of other things: theatre, arts, music dancing, you name it, we're doing it. This year in Cambridge Limud, we're focusing quite strongly on music and there's an awful lot of, not performance, but people talking about various aspects of Jewish music. And it does do the trick, you know, it sends people away full of buzzes and loving what they've experienced over the day. We get so many positive remarks. The only things we ever get complaints about are the food, but it wouldn't be a Jewish event if people didn't complain about the food. I'd like to add that Limud is just not for adults, it's for children too. And we have a very comprehensive young Limud programme in Cambridge. It's just not some youth organisation doing the normal things. We have a lot going on 
in terms of learning other activities, great fun things like drumming and also puppet theatre. So are you, in effect, an offshoot of a big limud? I wouldn't call it an offshoot, it's an adjunct. An there adjunct. is a, lame, a main limud which lasts about five days. That's normally winter time. It, that's relatively, and it's in winter time, it's usually over the Christmas holidays. But there are day limuds all over the world and most countries don't have that sort of long, concentrated period of interaction. So a family would decide that they fancy coming along as a full day learning to inspire themselves Jewishly or single people or couples and they can choose what they want to learn, That, but presumably there is a set programme. There is a set programme. We have uh, six streams running concurrently throughout the day, each lasting just over an hour. And each time you finish a session, you then got the terrible task of trying to work out what you're going to do next because the choices are just fantastic. Can I just tell you about that? I was just about to ask you that very same question. It's second time we're going to have a visit from Howard Jacobson. He's obviously a well-known novelist, but he's terribly entertaining. He's uh, one of the funniest people you'll find in the Jewish community to listen to. He's really good. Amy Jill Levine is coming over from the United States. She's probably the foremost Jewish authority on Jesus and early Christianity. Uh, We've got Rabbi Levi Lauer, who is one of the most empathetic rabbis I've ever known. He's a profound theological person, and he seeks to live his religion by taking all sorts of probably unpopular but necessary social tasks on. And it does sound as if there are any number of sort of varieties. You said that there was a musical emphasis. How did that come about and who's the who is providing that? Originally, when we started this Cambridge Limud about a year ago, what I decided I wanted to try and do was provide an emphasis on two things that I didn't think Limud had ever done previously. One was to get speakers from the Southern Hemisphere, because there are huge Jewish communities in Buenos Aires, in South Africa, and Australia, and they're barely ever representative at all at Limudim in this country, simply because it's a long way for them to come. The other was to get more music. I signally failed to get anybody whatsoever to come from the Southern Hemisphere. I don't know why, but it just hasn't happened. But we have got a lot of music, and it's just simply to make something different happen on this occasion. People sometimes think that one Limud is much the same as another. This Limud is very different and it will be very entertaining for people of all ages. And just so that we know a bit about you guys, your background, are you teachers? Are you are you musicians? No, I'm not a teacher. I'm in business and I'm also have an academic stream, but not a teaching academic stream and <laughs> no, we're not in music. Not either. In music either. We're, just, but we're just both very interested in music. Indeed, we're off to a concert once we finish this interview with you. I'm interested particularly in early classical music of the Baroque period, but I'm not a musician in any sense. It's just I felt that uh, Limud had underrepresented music in the past, or at least Cambridge Limud had done so. If a pers- uh, I'm, by background, I'm a retired lawyer. If a person wants to, like you, you decide just you want to put on a learning day, do you do you associate yourselves with Limud? Is there, is there a formula that you have to follow? And how did you go about organising it all? Uh, I just approached Limud in the first place in uh, 2006 and said, I want to do a Cambridge Limud, can, I, can you help me? And that was it, really. And I just brought about the uh, event by gathering together all the locals who I thought would do stuff. And they did wonderfully well. And it's just gone on from then. We've had it every other year since 2007. And 
I do hope that it will go on indefinitely because it's such a great day. People love it and they come year after year from all over the place. We have a couple who come regularly from Glasgow, another couple who come from Cardiff. And in fact, most of the people that come to Cambridge and curiously come from London. It's about 80% come from London because, of course, the Cambridge community is relatively small. Is it in, in the Cambridge colleges is the uh, seat of learnings? There. Unfortunately, the colleges aren't really large enough. We actually, at the moment, have it based at Anglo-Ruskin University. And for people who want to, to, to budget, how much does it cost to go? And are there any, well, are there, are there any sort of subsidies? The whole thing is subsidised. We've got a lot of money, fortunately, from donations to support our event, which means that the fee we're charging this time for an adult or for a child is incredibly less than it was in 2013 at the time of our last event. But the adult price is £20, child price is much less, and there's a full family price for two adults and two children, which is even less. In fact, it's, it's a bargain, I think. And, it and does I'm, sound I'm like just a bargain. a tiny bit worried we made it too cheap. But anyway. <laughs> in no. addition to that, if people have got financial difficulties, they can apply for a bursary. Right. And to find out more about it and to apply and to book... How do we do that? Just Google Cambridge Limud. Joe and Julian Landy talking to Kate Fulton there about Limud, Cambridge. And if you would like more information, then you can always go to limud.org forward slash day forward slash Cambridge. That's limud.org forward slash day forward slash Cambridge. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can always contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. Now move over London Marathon because we are just weeks away from the Maccabi GB Community Fun Run. The annual fundraising event is nearly upon us once more and community reporter Diana Toman has been finding out more for us by speaking to Neil Taylor, the Maccabi GB's Head of Sport and Community Partnerships. She started by asking him to tell us what exactly is the Maccabi GB Community Fun Run. So the Maccabi GB Community Fun Run is is an event for everybody. It's an event for Jewish charities and schools to come together in one place to try and help them raise money through different events. So there is a 10K, but it's usually for eager runners. We have a 5K event, which again is for very eager runners. We have a 5K walk, so walking enthusiasts through a lovely park, and a 1K, which is accessible to everybody. It's on a track at Allianz Park, that's where it is on the day. And the 1K is one of our most popular events because, you know, I was there last year with my son who we pushed around in his buggy. People are there in wheelchairs. We've got grandparents and all the generations being there walking around. Are they all on the same day? It is on the same day, yeah. The but not 10K all in the starts same in the place. morning. No, well, it is on the same location. So Allianz Park has Barnet, is part of Barnet Coptal surrounding fields. And we use those fields to, to push the people around, basically, to, to get people to go. Right. Now, this has been going on for some time, hasn't it? I mean, this isn't the first time it's ever no, happened. No, not at all. This is our 10th anniversary. So we started in is 2007. It? And, yeah, this is our 10th anniversary. We're very proud of how the event is, has come on. Allianz Park is, you know, the we've been there now. This is our third year. 
And in total, we've raised over one and a quarter million pounds for Jewish charities and causes. And when you say Jewish charities, is it literally across the board or have you got some favourites or aren't you allowed to say? Oh, no, definitely no favourites. Everybody in the charity is their own personality and, you know, they've they've been fantastic. All the ones I've been dealing with this year, as well as the schools, they they want nothing more than to bring the community together like I do and just help raise money and raise awareness of what they do. Because, you know, in, in the marketplace that we're in and, you know, in the austerity measures that are going out, money is, is quite tight in some regards. And some charities who, you know, we have all heard of the big charities, but there may be some small ones that also do equally good work. And yes. that's very important to try and get their message out. Absolutely. Tell me, how long have you been involved with all of this? Oh, goodness. Well, I'm re- relatively new to the whole whole thing myself. I have actually been a teacher for nearly 10 years. And I decided that my calling in life was not necessarily to... I enjoy doing the teaching, but it wasn't necessarily to keep doing it in the environment I was in. And I've been volunteering for Maccabi for eight to nine years, doing international events and logistics, etc. And I know the guys here in the office and they knew that, you know, I was interested in finding something different. And they thought they put my skills to a different test. So they said, would I be interested in this? And thankfully, you know, I've, I've taken to it like a duck to water. It's stressful. It's fun. It's all the things I could ever want. It's great. How does that differ from teaching in Northern Ireland? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, 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 to be in a staff room of three as opposed to being into a classroom of 30 is a very different environment. But, you know, I, I get a lot of pride with from helping people. So regardless of whether they are a you know, 16-year-old wanting to learn the merits of you know, the 100-meter sprint or whether it's a charity who's never been heard of before trying to find a way through to, to meet the masses, I really enjoy that side of things. Are you running yourself, despite the push chair? I'll be running around <laughs> the place, yeah, right. um, but I'm not going to be doing the, the event myself. Unfortunately, the event is so large we're going to have close to well over 4,000 people there on the day and there's a lot of coordinating and logistics that need to take place. I can imagine particularly if there's several different types of events going on. Absolutely. How does one sign up? What's the process for signing up for either one or indeed more of the runs that are going to go on on that day? So it all comes through one one place and it's a website communityfunrun.org and you can register there. It has all all the information you could want. It has the timings for the day. It has all the charities and a little bit about what each one of them does. Get sent to a, uh, an area to register, which is great. And you can sign up as an individual. There are discounts for families to be involved in the day. And it's all about trying to raise money for the charities. And each person can choose up to three different charities that they can run for. So, for example, I might say that my grandmother... Has a link with Jewish care, but, you know, my son's school has a link with a different charity. How do I pick? Well, you don't. You can pick up to three. You can pick up to three. Mm-hmm. I see. And how much does it cost to actually sign up? So if you're an adult, so 16 plus, you pay £15 to register and all the money goes towards just things that you get in a participant's pack, things like a T-shirt, a running number, etc. If you are between 16 and three years old, it's £10. And under threes, you can come and poodle around the place, no problem at all. Right. Um, 
because that on to, on that sort of side of things, although it is a running event or a walking event, and it's all around the races, there are many other aspects to the day, and there's a lot of other Such events. As? So we've got, for example, a fun zone, which has things like a children's soft play, so people can come down, participants daughters, sons, grandchildren can be entertained while dad does the events. There's climbing walls, food. We also have a health and well-being hub so people can find out more about their health. We've got physios, nutritionists, Spire Healthcare are being involved and they're going to help with people's BMI, blood pressure, etc. And aside from that, obviously, there's a charity fair, which is basically where all the charities have a table that they can set up that they can show themselves to everybody that's there. Right, and perhaps St John's Ambulance as well, <laughs> just <laughs> so, in case. Absolutely, we need first aid cover there absolutely on the day. And, you know, we've got, luckily, where we, we are based in Shieldhouse and Hendon, we have Mug and Dove and Lamb who are going to be there as well um, in full force. But we also have big first aid cover there for the day because, as we've seen from things like the London Marathon, you know, we can't take anything for granted and everybody no. needs, um, needs support. Neil Taylor speaking to Diana Toman there about this year's Maccabi GB Community Fun Run, which takes place on Sunday the 19th of June. For more information, communityfunrun.org. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Moves, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today are community volunteers Andy Lucas and Liz Hirschkorn, two of my favourite women. The subject today is based on what we heard with Viv a little earlier on in the news. Former Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, has compared the EU to Adolf Hitler, likening the EU to the Nazi dictator's plans for domination of the continent. Furthermore, there have been other politicians who have made similar remarks when they've compared Israel to Hitler's Germany. Now, we have no intention of making this about individuals and their remarks, but the question is, is it ever acceptable to make comparisons to Hitler and all the Nazis in this day and age? Andy, let's start with you. I think up to a point about domination, he's not far wrong. Because I do think, you know, pers- on a personal level... Do you, you, are you saying then that possibly in the, in the next few weeks or years, the Europeans are going to start murdering Jews? No, or no, no. Others? I'm not saying that they're going to start murdering Jews or anything else. But I do feel that perhaps the European Union is extremely strong... And as far as trade and anything else that involves us as an island nation, I just worry that they are going to be very strong and they're going to try and dictate to us. Nothing to do with murdering Jews. And I don't think that was what, what Boris meant. No, but it still is, it seems to me it's, it's the wrong thing to say. Liz. I think it's totally offensive to even make this comparison. And I think it's insulting. It's insulting to people that are affected by it. It's, ins- it's not just insulting to Jews. It's insulting to, to everyone. Yeah. Yes, yes. Because, it's, in fact... Which comparison been... do you mean? This comparison or, or just in general? No, compa- you know, using Hitler as a comparison. I mean, because we have to sort of define, I think, what's right and what's wrong with it. I mean, surely... You, I mean, do we, can we never mention Hitler again unless it's... 
about remembrance of, of the Holocaust? Or, or, I mean, what are the boundaries here? I think it's essential that we should remember the Holocaust in which 10 million people died sure. and but were it, murdered. But is that the only time we're actually allowed to mention Hitler? Well, yes, because you can't compare something to Hitler or to Nazis unless it is comparable. But then, and that was such a huge thing. And this is not, you know, this is not what it's about. But I'm not sure that they're actually comparing the Nazi, you know, Nazi ideology of, of clearing the world of Jews. I think more that there, he's perhaps alluding to the fact that they are so strong and that the Nazis... Then, in that case, it's, it's surely it's perfectly all right to say, I believe that in the European Union, a particular country, say Germany or France, is too powerful and is telling all the other countries what to do. There's no need to bring in the name of the most evil man of the 20th yes, century. Well, and uh, uh, exactly. Basically, the German leader taking control of Europe under the guise of an anti-democratic body. Well, you can call it a and dictatorship. Then you, and then you've got Hitler and the Nazi party. Well, I mean, No, you can call it a dictatorship. The, but you've got to see the similarity, There's surely. There's no similarity because... <laughs> so there's a German chancellor at the moment is a key member in the decision-making for the, the whole of Europe. And this German chancellor was never elected. There's no democracy in the EU. So but I, I'm sorry, but I, I can the, see the similarities. The president of France, the president of France, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, the different prime ministers and presidents throughout the countries, all have as much to say as anybody else. And it's, she's not the supreme leader. And in fact... But she wasn't elected to lead Europe. She was elected, obviously, to lead Germany. So she is an elected member. But there's, there's no election. There's no democracy when it comes to the European Union. And that does concern me a bit, that there's a body of Europeans making decisions for the whole of Europe. But they, that doesn't yes, but sit that, right with no, me. That, but that's fair what you're saying. You can call it a dictatorship. I don't think you can bring Hitler into the equation. I'm not saying it's the same as Hitler. Now, far from it for me to say, to ever try and put that on anyone. I could never compare anyone to Hitler. However, what I'm pointing, trying to point out is that there are similarities with the dynamic of what's happening in Europe. The, the big difference I think we've, we've got at the moment is that well, for 2,000 years or so, since the Romans came and, and took over Europe, basically, Everyone's tried to take over Europe. So many people... No, I mean, Boris even mentioned Napoleon. He said Napoleon, Hitler, because Napoleon as well tried to conquer Europe. But now, the difference is with the European Union that it wasn't done by force. And I think that's where people get a little bit of a stumbling block because, oh, well, it's not like the Nazi party, it's not like the Romans, it's not like Napoleon because, oh, it's all very peaceful and we're all trying to do... But as I said... It's not dem democratic. It's not undemocratic. Every single thing that happens in the EU is discussed among the leaders. It might be discussed, but I don't know that people actually listen to the people that are putting forward their points of view. Well, when Mr... You know, they're when... being overruled. You know, Tony... Um, Cameron went to... David. Oh, David Cameron, <laughs> thank you. 
I'm getting He's confused. He's just like Tony Blair. Yeah, 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 yeah. He went to Europe to say, I'm going to renegotiate. And what did he come back with? Sweet nothing. Yeah. No, I don't think that's entirely true. And he, one of his greatest allies in rejigging the British part of the EU was the Chancellor of Germany. It is, and at the moment, Poland is feeling much the same way as Britain felt. The Polish leaders are being listened to by the other members. We are all equal. All the countries of Europe are equal. And it's interesting to note that for 70 years, there has been peace in Europe for the first time in centuries. There is a lot of this trying to control people, everything being controlled by this body of the EU. Mm. Yes, but in exactly the same way as everything that happens, we are controlled. We are controlled by whichever party is in government in this country for five years. But we lose our identity here as well, getting sucked into all this. In what way do we lose our identity? Well, if we're all following these rules that are coming from Europe and we've joined this, we we don't have the identity that we used to have. Well, that's quite a good thing, isn't it? No, we're losing our sovereignty. And they're not really being fair because we are an island. We're not allowed to trade with a lot of countries because this is what Europe has said. Now, if we, for instance, weren't in Europe and I'm not saying which way we should go, we would then be able to trade with with Australia, with New Zealand, with all countries that were part of our Commonwealth that we are not supposed to be trading with now. We're not allowed to trade with them unless they pay a big surcharge, as far as I'm aware. You know, and we will be able to trade with them again. You know, we're dictated to who we can trade with, who we can't trade with. The French farmers go on strike at the drop of a hat and we roll over and say, OK, fine, we're going to take this. Oh, how far up do you want us to put our legs? You know, it, it's crazy. It's crazy. We are being dictated to by them. But uh, bringing it back to what we were saying about the comparison with, with Hitler, is it possible... Now, hear me out. Is it possible that it's a positive thing? In the sense that... He's not being forgotten. He's still being remembered as the most evil man in the 20th century, if not longer. His memory is still being related to this evil man who tries to conquer and tries to rule. So is it better that people are actually remembering him than just forgetting about it and it goes into the annals of history and in 50 years' time, no one really knows who Hitler was and, and the whole thing has I think been there's forgotten. still most people, most people realize who Hitler was and history teaches that he was, without doubt, one of the most evil people, if not the most evil person, who has lived in the last Absolutely. numbers and, of And centuries. you don't want it brought up in the wrong way, you know, too lightly, to use the name too lightly. But that's the thing, all the context in which he's been spoken about has been pretty negative. But in general, someone like Ken Livingston mentioning it, someone like Boris Johnson mentioning it, I'm not sure it's a bad thing. I'm not sure that it's a bad thing that he's being spoken about in negative terms by some of the most influential people in this country. Whatever you believe, the European Union has not marched into countries in Europe 
and said, we are now the bosses. Do you think we're being too sensitive as Jews? As soon as we hear the word Hitler, oh, we can't say anything and how dare you mention his name? And... Well, no, I think we're not really saying that because the question was, you know, do we think that it was correct what he said? Not about what we think about the EU because I agree with a lot of what you've said. It's just the way that he used that connotation. It, I just didn't think it, it was in the right way. Not saying we mustn't mention him, but I think it was. It is offensive when used. If you feel it's used in the wrong way, is offensive. And I said it not just as a Jew, that anybody would think. I that. think I think it is absolutely wrong to mention the name Hitler unless one is referring to the terrible, ghastly, vile things he did in the 20th century. And modern politics, which are democratic, whatever you might think about it, they are still democratic. To throw his name into the, into the plot is just, in my opinion, my very humble opinion, quite ridiculous. Hitler should be remembered for the evil that he did in the 20th century, killing 10 million people. Six million of them were Jews, but four million of them were not Jews. He destroyed a number of countries. He bombed all over the world. He was a completely evil man. Absolutely, and I don't think anyone's And therefore his name shouldn't be that. used in this sort of throwaway way in which it has been done. What Boris implied with his comments, from what I can make out, is nothing to do with the evil of Hitler. An evil that I have no doubt we all, all agree on. That, that That's not an argument. That's not a debate. The fact that he mentioned the likes of Napoleon and Hitler. And he's, he mentioned Napoleon yes, as well. See, Napoleon he... was not an evil despot who went around murdering and killing. He was using those people as an example of people who have tried to take over Europe. He wasn't saying that the EU are going to set up concentration camps and start killing but all Jews the leaders. and gypsies. He and was gays. trying to he make a point. He was trying to He's make a point, but it, I don't think it was appropriate. All the leaders of the European Union, from the Chancellor of Germany to the President of France to the King of Spain, uh, the Prime Minister of Spain to David Cameron, they're not there to rule over everybody. They're there to make excellent ideas for the European Union. Europe has for centuries fought with itself. Now, you're, and I said it earlier and I'll say it again, Europe has been a free, peaceful continent for 70 years. And that's amazing. Parts of Europe have still had many, many problems, have had wars, have had genocidal issues throughout the country. They weren't at that time members of the European Union where they had them. No, they weren't. I don't think we can look at Europe in such an idyllic way. And I think we do still have to be wary of monopolising power. That's my greatest concern, which gets me back to Hitler monopolised power. And, and I have to say, in defence of Boris, although I can't defend him actually using that analogy because it's distasteful to me. It's not necessarily wrong, but it's distasteful. I can understand the analogy, but I don't really understand why you would use that one. Well, let's put it this way, that in actual fact, Hitler's name should only be mentioned when one is talking about what the Nazi period did 
to Europe and, in fact, indeed, to the world. It destroyed millions of lives. It destroyed many, many countries. There are many criticisms to be made, quite fairly, about the European Union. But there is no reason to bring in the name of the most hateful man in history. So what if, what if Boris had mentioned Stalin, Genghis Khan? We wouldn't be having this discussion now. Well, because Genghis Khan happened a very long time ago when the world was pretty savage anyway. Yeah. And Napoleon was not, was not at all like Hitler. Can I just say, interestingly, when you said about Hitler, the only time we should mention him is when we're talking about how evil he is. When I was a child, when me, my brother or my sister would ever say, oh, I hate that, or I hate him, or I hate her, my mum would always say, no, you don't. You're only allowed to hate Hitler and Heyman. Yes, well, maybe she's right. Uh, that's a very good point. We should all listen to her. Uh, that's a very good point, I think, of which to end this discussion. And my thanks very much to our guests, community volunteers Andy Lucas and Liz Hirschkorn. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com stroke Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. And time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United Synagogue. This weekend's Torah reading is Emor. Among many things, Emor talks about the festivals. In fact, it's a passage which is read on festivals, unsurprisingly. It begins by saying these are God's special appointed times where there will be an opportunity for the Jewish people to meet, as it were, with God in some way that's different from other times of the year. Some aspects of the festivals, of course, are agricultural, but some focus around specific observances or issues of historical significance. But the way the passage begins is fascinating. It says, these are the appointed times, the festivals of God. And you'd expect, given that it's going through the year, it would start with Pesach, which was just a few weeks ago. But in fact, before it gets into Pesach and then Shavuot and so on and so forth, it starts with Shabbat. You'd expect Shabbat perhaps not to be part of the festival cycles, but there it is at the beginning, introducing the section itself. All the commentaries wonder why it is that Shabbat appears there. And of course, I suppose that it's really the daddy of all seasonal observances. We tend as a community to get quite worked up about things that happen occasionally, the Pesach Seder, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, other festivals. But actually, the core of Jewish observance is Shabbat, the weekly Sabbath. It can be get forgotten. It requires quite a lot of effort to get involved with something every week. But Shabbat actually is the backbone of the entirety of Jewish observance, not just of the festivals, but in fact of Jewish life itself. It's really the litmus test of full engagement with Jewish life. And it's quite famously referred to by Achat Ha'am, who was an important late 19th century Zionist thinker. He said, more than the Jews have kept Shabbat, Shabbat have kept the Jews. Meaning that actually the ability to observe Shabbat, to focus on religious matters once a week, to think about God, to think about community, to think about family, and to cease from all creative activity to do that, is really the backbone of religious, family, and all kinds of Jewish life. Thank you to Rabbi Harvey Belofsky from Golders Green United Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Michael McCann, Joe and Julian Landy, Neil Taylor. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Andy Lucas and Liz Hirschkorn. And of course, 
you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to thank our team, including our producers Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. Don't forget you can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.